Well, good morning. Uh, I'm glad that you are here. I'm glad that you are uh, awake, fanning yourself uh, as we get through the service today. Uh, it is a joy to be gathered together, and um, I hope that we don't miss the opportunity that's before us. And we gather together to meet with the living God week in and week out. And uh, that, is, that's, that is a privilege that is hard to quantify. And yet it's something that if you do regularly, we can just take for granted. So I pray that today, just the, the singing, the prayers that have been prayed, the sermon that will be preached, I pray that your faith will be strengthened. That you really would come to treasure and love and follow more faithfully this God whom we worship. Uh, as you've heard multiple times today in our service, this is a sweet day uh, for our church family. It's a sweet day for the church family that we planted last week. And so just call us to remember Covenant Hope in the days ahead as they seek to uh, be a faithful gospel witness in the community of St. Petersburg for many, many years to come. Now what? Now what? Perhaps you're familiar with the now what feeling. You've given a lot of, uh, you've given a lot of energy and effort and time towards accomplishing something, towards seeing something come to fruition, and you have this big culminating moment, and on the other side of the moment, we're hit sometimes with this feeling of now what? You spend so many years of your life trying to graduate from high school or college or to finish the master's program, and you think, now what? You've made partner finally. You're the manager. You land the job that you've been aiming for, and deep down, the thought crosses your mind, now what? You get the friendships that you long for. You get the sports accolades that you dream of. You move across country to begin a new chapter. You marry you hold the life of a newborn in your hands. The last child leaves home. I mean, the culmination of months, perhaps even years of efforts and energies. The box is finally checked. And we're left with the feeling and the question, now what? And we as a church aren't immune to the question. In fact, it's a question that has found us often over the last 12 and a half years. I can remember moving from Wake Forest, North Carolina to Tampa, Florida and getting here and going, now what? I can remember when we began having interest meetings and people would show up, now what? I can remember in 2016, we planted the heights, and now what? We assumed this property, now what? And even last week, to be able to have this celebratory moment where we're sending off and then we gather back together and perhaps now what has crossed your mind? I believe underneath the now what question lies either a genuine uncertainty, we're not sure what to do or where to go or what's going to happen, or there's a bit of fear and trepidation at the thought of a reset. Do we just... We make it this far and then we just go back and do it again. And is this the treadmill that the Christian life is calling us to? There can seem to be a lull in the now what? A sense of, okay, here we go again. Let's start over. I can remember six years ago having multiple conversations with members where the now what sentiment was felt. We had sent off the church plant. We gathered back together. And the thought of all of the years of praying and the years of investing and the years of buildup. And for those that do the sending, it seems to be a now what? And those that do the going, there's, there's continued excitement and continued preparation and continued new chapters and new seasons. Our brothers and sisters at Covenant Hope will experience that in the next several weeks and months ahead. But what about Covenant Life? What's next for us? Where's the excitement and the anticipation for us who did the sending? 
Well, I believe the answer lies in our passage this morning in Mark chapter 8. This is what I'm reminded of at certain moments in the Christian life like this. Excitement and anticipation in the Christian life does not require a string of celebratory, momentous events, but rather it's found in the regular, ordinary, faithful obedience that comes from living faithfully to God over over the long haul. And so I just want to free you from thinking somehow that your life is less than important or exciting because there hasn't been a ton of mountaintops that you're just jumping from. Most of the Christian life is an uphill battle. It's an uphill journey. And along the way, God grants us grace to sort of realize we've reached a mountaintop. And so let's look around, let's celebrate, let's take it in. But then let's remember that what's ahead is more uphill. It's more of what Mark chapter 8 reminds us of. Seeking to be faithful day after day moment after moment, trusting that the faithfulness that brought us to this point, that brought us to the celebratory momentous events, will be the same faithfulness that will carry us home. And so Covenant Life, this is the answer to the now what question. We continue to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And if that sounds somehow boring or less than adventurous or exciting, I think we're sadly mistaken. And so I hope that our time together in God's word this morning will bring that to light. Let's pray for that to happen. Our holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we approach you asking you for your help. Would you meet with us? There are promises that are overflowing from your word that talk about how when your word goes forth, it accomplishes its purposes. God, we pray that your work and your will would be accomplished as your word goes forth. Do it in each of our lives. And just remembering the the prayer of saints of old. God, I pray that you would teach us this morning just the values of your kingdom that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that a contrite spirit is a rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess everything, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, and that even in the valleys, that is the place of vision. And so would you make that true this morning as we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you, as we continue our worship this morning, the singing has stopped, but our worship will continue as we open God's word, put ourselves under it, and respond to it. And so if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those are the four gospels that begin the New Testament. Chapter 8 will be the large number at the top corner of the page. The smaller numbers are going to be the verses. We will be in verses 34 through 38. But before we can faithfully jump into verse 34, we have to know what's going on in this context. We just are parachuting in what's been happening thus far in this chapter in the book of Mark. Well, if you were to flip back, beginning in Mark chapter 8, verse 22, we're given this account of Jesus healing a blind man at Bethsaida. And this healing is a little bit different from every other of Jesus' healings. This is a a two-staged healing of this blind man. He is, is healed. He's completely blind. Jesus partially heals him. He begins to see, and he says, I'm seeing men, but they look like they're trees walking around. And Jesus then touches his eyes again and heals him so he can see clearly. Well, right out of that account of this healing, you're thinking, man, what is, there's something unique about this two-stage healing. Did Jesus run out of power here in Mark chapter 8? That's not what happens. We keep reading. We begin to find out. Mark, Mark continues in verse 27. 
And he tells of this time and this moment as they're in Caesarea Philippi where Jesus turns around and he asks his disciples, hey, who do, the pe- who do people say that I am? Well, some say you're this and some say you're that. And Jesus says, but who do you, my disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers and he says, you are the Christ. And in the moment we're thinking, the disciples finally get it. It's as if the disciples can finally see Mark chapter 8, verse 31, the first of three times in Mark chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, where Jesus is going to predict his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. And as he begins to do this, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to suffer, he's going to be rejected, he's going to be, he's going to be killed, and then he's going to rise from the dead three days later. And the same Peter who answered rightly, you were the Christ, the same Peter that we're tempted to think, he can see is the Peter who, once Jesus begins to talk about his death, pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. To which Jesus replies, Get behind me, Satan. You know you're having a bad day when Jesus looks at you and says, Get behind me, Satan. And so what we begin to realize is, wait a minute, I thought Peter could see. He can see something. But Peter, the disciples, they were anticipating a Messiah who would come, who would bring in victory. It it could not compute with them that there would be a Messiah who would come, who would suffer and be killed, who would die. And we begin to see... Peter can't see. The disciples, though they see in part, they can't see clearly. And then we begin to realize, wait a minute, the whole point of the healing, aside from restoring sight to the blind man, is that the physical condition of this blind man helps us understand the spiritual condition of the disciples. They're seeing in part, but they're not seeing clearly. And it's at this point that verse 34 tells us that Jesus then pulls back and calls not just the disciples to himself, but the crowds. He summons the crowds. There's something about an urgency of this message that isn't merely to be for these few, but to be for all. And he summons the crowds to himself, and he invites them to live life the way that they were intended to live it. And that invitation stands for you and I this morning as well. And so don't miss the invitation. This isn't merely a conversation that we're watching take place in Jesus' day with with the crowds. Locate yourself in this story. Respond to the invitation that Jesus gives the crowds then. And so this morning, what we'll do is we'll consider the invitation, and then he gives three reasons for the invitation. And so that will be our sermon outline, the invitation, and then three reasons for the invitation. First, the invitation. Listen again, Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It would, be, it would be easy to have people stand in this pulpit week in and week out and just declare that Jesus wants to affirm you in whatever it is that you want to do. And I just want you to know, if you're hearing that through pastors that you're listening to online or through a church that you belong to, be Very, very leery of that. Jesus loves you too much to leave you in the place where you say, I just want God to affirm what I want. He loves you too much to leave you there. In fact, he loves you so much, he helps you and I understand that that desire of just, I want it this way, is part of the problem and the predicament that we find ourselves in apart from God. And so, 
Now what? What's the invitation? There are three commands in this invitation. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. And so as we think about Jesus' invitation here, it is a costly invitation. It's a costly invitation. And it's costly because of the very first command, deny himself, deny yourself. It would help us to know that Jesus isn't, uh, he's not calling you to deny yourself of something, right? This isn't merely a call. This isn't Jesus saying, hey, we're going to fast for a little, we're going to fast for a little bit. 40 days of no TV, deny yourself no TV. Deny yourself of chocolate, deny yourself of bad movies, deny yourselves of certain sins. That is, Jesus, this call is not Jesus saying, there are things in your life that you should deny yourself of. No, this is a complete renouncing of denying ourself of self. Not merely some aspect of our life. Jesus is saying, cease to make yourself the object of all of your actions and all of your thoughts. This involves a fundamental reorientation of life. Jesus looks at the crowds and says, if you are going to follow me faithfully, you cannot be the center of you. And yet every one of us knows when we hear that, it grates against us. Because we love when we are the center of self. We love it. You can no longer be the center of you. Jesus has to be the center of you. I mean, this is what Paul teases out in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul writing, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's this denying of myself. It's when I wake up and I want to go this way, I always deny myself of that impulse. And I say, God, what would you have me do? God, what has your word said I should do? Your word, not my, not my desire, set the agenda for my life. And so too as a church. His word, not our strategies, sets the agenda for who we are as a people, who we are as a church. It's this constant reorientation of saying, my impulse is to do what I want to do. And before I move, I'm going to say, God, what would you have me do? And, and this isn't even mystical, trying to tap into this sort of hidden, God's playing hide and seek with his will. His word is clear about what he desires for his people to do. And so we lean in. We become a people of the word so that we can be a people who fight to ensure that Christ, not us, is at the center of self. And so we deny ourselves. But it's not just denial of self. It's also taking up our cross. Taking up our cross. And so it would serve us well to get the, the accessory, the ornate, kind of the beautiful picture of the cross out of our mind. This was the symbol of Rome's terror and of horrific death. And so when Jesus calls his followers to take up their cross, Jesus isn't saying, hey, when life throws minor irritations at you, like losing air conditioning on a Sunday morning, <laughs> take up your cross. Uh, right James Brooks, uh, an author, says, this is not enduring some irritation or even a major burden, but it's a willingness to give up everything that's dear to you in this life, even life itself, for the sake of gaining Christ. And so Jesus wasn't saying, let's find the nice accessory that's, that's on walls and perhaps even shoulders of people. He was saying, carry your coffin everywhere you go.
Luke's gospel says, take up your cross daily. I mean, this would have hit Mark's audience uniquely because at the time of this, uh, at the time they would have been reading this, Nero was crucifying followers of Jesus. He was falsely accusing them of burning the city and then he would bring them out and as, a, as this statement of do, do not cross Rome, he was horrifically putting Christians to death. And I'm, I'm just reminded, oftentimes we can hear this and we can think, okay, I have to take up my cross. I have to be willing to die. That somehow, if I'm doing this, then that's like a sign that God has forgotten about me or he's abandoning me. And I think Mark's audience would have heard this and not thought, God is abandoning me if I take up my cross, but God is identifying with me in taking up my cross. Galatians 2.20 says it best. I have been crucified with Christ. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. I mean, really, come to the place where you're willing to say, I will lose it all so that I may gain and have him. And then Jesus' last command here in this invitation is to follow me. And let's be clear, you can't look at the three commands and say, give me the third one and not the first two. The only way you follow him is by denying yourself and taking up your cross. In other words, Jesus is saying, treasure me more than your own comfort, more than your own safety, more than your own life. I just think this is such a good word for Covenant Life Church. Treasure Christ more than our safety, more than our comforts, more than even this life. It's, it's Paul's sentiment in Philippians 3.8. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I count everything as lost. And then he goes on to say, I count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. It's this longing for Christ. I can follow Christ because when I gain Christ, I, I lose I may lose things of this world, but I lose nothing in comparison to what I gain. Paul Tripp says this is a call. This is an invitation of grace because in calling us to this kind of commitment, this kind of surrender, Jesus is rescuing us from ourselves. It's a call to let go of your own life and the plan that you have for your life and your prominent role in your life. Lay that all down and follow Christ. I mean, what would it look like to be a church full of Christ followers who said, I, this is not about me. This is not about us. We want to leverage this little bit of life, this vapor of existence that we have for the glory of God and the good of those around us. And so we'll deny ourselves at every turn so that there can be more of Christ. More of Christ. And I'm saying this, and we may be prone to think, yep, sounds good. But here in the West, it can seem that there's that it costs very little to follow Jesus because we don't always connect following Jesus with choosing death and being ready to die at all times. And so it would just serve us well to know that though it may be packaged differently, the word of God here is the same word for us today. There's no, well, we've got a lot of advances and so now we don't really have to take up crosses. Now we don't have to fully deny ourselves. Now we don't even have to completely follow him. No, if I could state it another way, Jesus looks at the crowds and says, you can't follow me. You won't follow me unless you're ready to lose your life as you know it. This morning, I wonder if that is your sentiment. I mean, are you ready and willing to lose your life so that you could follow him? 
so that you could have him? Is this something that you think about on a regular basis? How do I deny self? How do I take up cross? And how do I follow him? Perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian this morning. I just want you to know that the answer to the question, now what for you, it begins here. It's denying yourself of living life your own way. And perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian. You think, I don't think my life is that bad. Like This makes sense for guys that are really, really bad. I'm not really, really bad. I, I just want to remind you, believing that God's word is truth, then owing to Adam and Eve, the first humans, those who we have all come from, Owing to Adam and Eve who rebelled against God and did what they thought best, you inherited the same nature. The problem that you have when you stand before a holy God is not that you have a few sins that you have committed. The problem is that at your very core, your identity, you are set against God. You have a sin nature. You are wholly opposed to him. And God... Being a holy God must judge sin. He must pour out his holy hatred on, on everything that's against him, on everything that rebels against him. And so, because he's good and faithful and just, he will do exactly that. He will pour out his holy hatred upon sinners. Each one of us will stand underneath this cup of wrath that he will pour out because of sin. And there's nowhere to hide. There's no, well, remember this. Uh, what about this? It's I'm guilty. And yet in great mercy and grace, God the Father sent Jesus the Son to satisfy God's holy standard the standard that you and I can't keep, Jesus kept. And then he dies this wrath-absorbing death. It's as if the cup of wrath is getting ready to be poured on objects of his wrath because of sin nature. And in great mercy, Christ steps in between to absorb God's wrath. So not only does he provide something that we can't earn, righteousness, he pays for something that we're deserving of. And then three days later, the good news that not just there was the death of sin and the death of Jesus, but in the resurrection of Jesus, there is the death of death, showing that all who repent and believe, they can. They can know everlasting life. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, I just want you to know the good news, the now what for you, is not what do you do after a church that you attend plants another church. The now what for you is what do you do when you realize that before a holy God, you are guilty and there's nothing that you can do to satisfy his wrath. You can run to the one who provides refuge. And you do that by turning from your sin, turning from living life how you want to live it, from you calling the shots and trusting in the work of Jesus alone to be that which will ever make you acceptable to stand before a holy God. And it would be the joy of any person in this room to say, I would love to talk with you further about that. In fact, every Christian in this room, this is their story. Once under God's wrath, now seated at his table as family. The good news for you, non-Christian friends, is that you can know the joy of living life under the good rule and reign of King Jesus. And my Christian brothers and sisters, you entered through the small gate and perhaps you're prone to think or forget that that path is narrow. 
The gate is small and the path is narrow. And this is to daily be our lives, not, not out of drudgery and duty, but because of joy. Because of joy. That's the invitation. And Jesus gives us three reasons as to why we would be fools to not respond to that invitation. Each of these reasons began with the word for in verses 35 through 38. And so we saw the invitation, now the reasons. First reason is this in verse 35. Die so that you might live. Die so that you might live. Listen again, verse 35. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And so let's just be clear. You are not following Christ if you are still holding dear to your life. Jesus makes it clear here. You have to let go of holding on to your life in order to cling to Christ. And as David Platt notes, the problem with that is that we've created a whole Christian culture that says you can hold on to your life and to Christ. And that flies in the face of what Jesus teaches here. We can say you can have Christ in your life if that's what you want, but that is a false truth that's revolving around a false Messiah. And that false Messiah would be you. If you want to live in Christ, you have to die to self. In John chapter 12, Jesus is teaching about his coming death. And he makes this statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In the kingdom of God, the way in which we come to know life and live it fully is by dying to self and dying daily. It's just the paradox of the kingdom of God. We die so that we might live. And so whatever God wants, I want. Whatever God wants me to be, that's what I will be. Whatever, wherever he wants me to go, that's where I will go. Whatever he asks me to give, that's what I will give. And I will give it no matter the cost because Jesus is my life. Christian, that's your mantra. It's not just a song that we sing. All we have is Christ. We have died to ourselves. This is what it means to follow Christ. And so as we think about now what, is there a lull now that we've planted a church, we've kind of climbed the hill, we saw the mountain, we were at the mountaintop, we had the celebratory moment, now what? It's the same faithful path that we sought to walk in order to get there. We continue to die to self so that we might live. And the only way that we will save our life is in willing submission to God's rule upon our life. If you and I are tight, fisting, white knuckling, holding on to life as we want it, our life, our will, our way, our plan, our purpose, we will not get life. That's not how you lay hold of life. The pathway to ultimate Life runs through dying daily. And, and I think some of us hear this and we begin to think, okay, I get it. Die to self so that we can live. This is God's way of just controlling us and saying, yep, every, I want you to live a life of gloom, to be pleasureless, to be just mere existing. That is the furthest thing from what Jesus is offering here clutching for life in the ways that this world offers it will not gain you life. In fact, you will lose life. You will lose it. I'm helped by an article that I read this week. It said the kingdom of heaven holds secrets of which the devil knows nothing. Where Jesus reigns, the way up is down, and the first are last, and the only way to save your life is to lose it for his sake. And he said, 
The life we find on the other side of self-denial, it may look far different from the life we've always wanted. But it will never, it cannot ever be worse. The other side of self-denial, dying to self, your life may look different than the life that you wanted, but it will not look worse. It can't. Mark chapter 10, verse 30. We gain a hundredfold more than we ever give up. Your life and my life, it's no longer this, this broken note in the symphony of the universe. Whenever we die to self so that we can live, we're now sounding the part that God created us for. It's a life with Christ, the maker of all beauty, the redeemer of all brokenness, the fountain of all joy. When you deny yourself, you don't lose yourself. You actually find yourself as you were intended and created to be. Jonathan Edwards once preached, self-denial destroys the very root and foundation of sorrow. Self-denial destroys the very root and foundation of sorrow. So many of your sorrows and my sorrows, they come from the same bitter root. All the world's sorrows, griefs, trials, and trouble, they find their beginning in Adam and Eve's choice of self over God. And when you and I deny self, when you and I die to self so that we can truly live, We're destroying the very root and the foundation of sorrow. And so for all the pain that denying self and dying to self brings, it is the only path to exceeding joy. This isn't God being a cosmic killjoy. This is a God laboring to ensure that you and I find joy in its fullest And he doesn't just say, lose your life. I mean, other religions have martyrs. That's not the aim here. It's lose your life for the sake of, for my sake, for Christ's sake, and for the gospel's sake. And so if you die at 43 and you have nothing, you have no possessions, no honors, but you have Christ, you will have everything for eternity. And if you live until you're 103 and you die then, and you have everything this world offers you, but you have rejected Christ, you will have lost everything. And you will have nothing for all of eternity. That brings us to the second reason. Not just die so that you can live, but treasure the right thing. Treasure the right thing. We see this in verses 36 and 37. For what does it gain uh, for what does it profit a man to gain the world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And so what Jesus is reminding us of in these two verses is, is that your soul is more precious than anything else this world offers. Jesus asked two rhetorical questions. And he just says, if, if in your account... If you could be king or queen and you could own it all, what good would that be for you to own it all and to lose your soul? The second question, from a different vantage point, what in this world can be compared to your soul? The most enduring thing about you and I, our soul, the breath of God in us. There is no treasure in this life, even in the whole world, that comes close to being the value of your soul which means then nothing deserves more attention than protecting and guarding our souls. And perhaps there's nothing more deceptive than the riches of this world, the ways of this world that want to come up next to us and just whisper in our ears, I want to be your friend. I want to give you what you want. I want you to have me so that you can enjoy life to the fullest. And the only things that can be found in Christ, the world says, ah, give me the sales pitch. 
I will always, always over promise and under deliver. I'm just reminded even what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Contrary to what the world promises, Jesus says if you buy into that, if you're willing to lose your soul so that you can gain stuff, you will get death. Someone says, I'll give you the house of your dreams. I'll give you the man, the woman of your dreams. I will give you the family of your dreams. I will give you the career of your dreams. I will give you the awards of your dreams. I give you all of that and then I kill you. Do you want it? Most people would say, no. No. Because if I got it, I would lose it. And yet people are subtly being swept away by the same lie that masquerades in other forms of give your soul to lesser things. To have everything in this world is a lot. All the success, all the fame, all you could want, everything South Tampa has to offer, everything the United States has to offer, only for us to realize that none of that will last. None of it will last. Parents, don't raise your kids to have everything this world offers. Jesus is everything. Nothing in this world is better than Christ. And so let's stop living for short-term satisfaction over our long-term well-being. And that brings us to the last rationale for why Why deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him? Third, because we want to identify with Christ and not the world. Identify with Christ and not the world. We see this in verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. To identify with Christ and not the world means that we have to identify with Christ before the world. Which is why it's such a good thing for Christians to first come public, go public with identifying with Christ in baptism. The Bible knows nothing of secretive Christians. Sure, there are places where people can't gather freely, but it knows nothing of this, I'm not going to identify with Christ. No, there is identification with Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. John Piper is helpful here. The opposite of being ashamed of Christ is being proud of Christ. To love to be identified with Christ. So Jesus is saying, if you are embarrassed by me and the price that I paid for you, not that you have a moment where you were embarrassed and you didn't speak up and share the gospel when you could have. No, but if the posture of your heart is, I am embarrassed to be identified with Christ, Then Jesus says here, if you're not proud of me, you don't cherish me and what I've done for you, then that's the way I will view you when I return. And so again, this sounds really good. Yes, we're going to identify with Christ and we're going to do it at the expense of identifying with the world. I just want you to know what that practically looks like then. Practically then it means I'm willing to suffer If it means I'm obedient, then to be disobedient and not suffer. I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to endure the suffering that comes with obedience over the comfort that comes from disobedience. And for most of us, we're probably not going to face persecution, the likes of our brothers and sisters in Yemen and Somalia in North Korea, but some of you have jobs that will become more and more in jeopardy as you hold fast to your convictions. And I believe an application of this is Jesus saying, rather than keeping your job and compromising your convictions, lose your job and hold fast to your convictions. Identify with me. 
losing friends and relationships that cause you to grow embarrassed by your allegiance to Christ. It's worth it. Christian, gladly renounce the prosperity and the applause of this world and embrace the prosperity and the applause of the world to come. Identify with Christ. If I could just, teens, college students, at some point, you just stop caring about what other people think about you. I'm there. I've been there probably for a while. But I can, I can remember where it was my world. I was enslaved to just what people thought about me. If I can just speak to our students, what others think about you in this world, that is not life for you. It can't be. It can't be. Jesus came and he said, I have come so that you can have real life. Life that will never fade and end and let you down. And the opinions, students, of those whom you're trying to, to kind of garner and earn, their opinions, I, I, if you only knew, they will not matter. In potentially just a few weeks or months, most definitely in a few years. It won't matter. And so with all the world that's before us, with all the stuff that we could live for, let's live for that which will never fade away. Let's trade the applause of man for the next few years of your life, even if it's 40, even if it's 80. Let's trade that for the approval of one for the next 600 trillion years. I mean, I, I read this invitation and I'm helped. One commentator said, who's the real lover of life here? Jesus is pleading, don't throw your life away. Follow me. Don't believe the lie that 80 years of human praise and physical pleasures are better than 8 million ages of years with fullness of joy, uninterrupted, undiminished, unparalleled pleasures at the right hand of God. And so now what? In the aftermath of last week, celebratory, momentous life. Now what? We go the way of Jesus. We deny ourselves. We take up our cross and we follow him. And there's no lull in doing that. There are many ways that I think we can tease this out. Thinking about our mission statement, we want to be a people who delight. We want to be disciples and make disciples who delight in God, who live in gospel-centered community. I just think there are questions that would be helpful in community group this week just to talk about questions. How is it? How is it that my refusal to deny myself is impacting for the negative community with others? How is it that me not being willing to take up my cross is affecting my ability to enjoy and treasure God. There are 17 empty seats this morning that were filled last week by members of this church. And this is what I hope. I hope that you are praying that the Lord would help us fill those seats with 17 non-Christians who will hear about the gospel and get a taste of our life together. Again, John Piper says, Christianity is a soul-winning, outreaching, mind-persuading, heart-entreating, rescuing missionary faith, or it's not true Christianity. Little by little, our whole orientation as a church can become inward, and we can go for months and years and not think about those who perish. We, become, we can become so dull and spiritually callous that we don't even ask if we believe in hell or lostness or the preciousness of Christ and the power of the cross and the freeness of the gospel and the commands of Jesus. We just go about our in-house religious business like a medical clinic that sees fewer and fewer patients but has more and more staff meetings until there's nothing left but a smooth running program for doctors and nurses and their families. This is just what I want to say. It is not a threat to a church that takes seriously this call to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. It's not a threat to sin members. 
And the reason it's not a threat is because if we were just to raise our heads and look out at the harvest field all around us, it's white. It's ready. On any given Sunday, eight out of ten fellow residents of the Tampa Bay area aren't gathering together. They're not valuing and treasuring Christ. And so pray for workers and then ask God to make you a part of that solution. Invite people in with you. Invite them to Sunday services, hangouts with the church family. Open your home to your coworkers and your neighbors. Take captive the reasons for your running errands and, and going to the gym and recreation. Use gospel intentionality in all of those things. Go overseas in one of our mission trips next year. Make it a point to share the gospel more regularly than you have during the month of October, more regularly than you did in the month of September. There's a stat that goes around that bothers me. It says church plants are five times more likely to see people come to faith than established churches. I don't want to be okay with that. And I think if we give ourselves to denying ourselves what we want, and taking up our cross, being willing to take gospel risk for his name and for others' good, then I don't think that will be true of us. Praise God for those who move to Tampa and who find us. But I don't want to be a church that only grows that way. And so who are you in relationship with that you're sharing the hope of the gospel with, trusting that he's going to save? And just maybe he they will be added to our number. And if if it's not our number, I don't care. But to the number of a healthy church in which they can come to know him better. Yeah. Now what? I pray we would be a church that gladly gives ourselves to faithfulness in the ordinary that helps one another deny self, take up cross, follow him. And we realize that when we give ourselves to that, there's no lull in the Christian life. There's no lull. Let's pray. God, as we sit under your word and we think about how your word intersects with our lives, I pray that you would help us Help us have clarity. Help us apply this correctly. Help us know how we ought to respond. God, for the glory of your name, would you help Covenant Life not fall into a host of ditches? mere religious routine, joyless walking through the Christian life, living for self. God, help us be a people who repent often and who invite others into the joy of this life of repentance. And so in the next moment of silence, we pray that you would speak by your spirit. Your servants are listening.